welcome to a storm of spoilers off season tour. My name is Dave Gonzalez, and if I were to make a small thing large to use it as a hilarious weapon, I would uh, take a cue from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and use a giant Oreo cookie. Uh, my name is Joanna Robinson, and if I were to take a small object and make it large to create a hilarious weapon, I would go with something that uh, Dave has informed me is classic Batman and uh, turn a penny into like a discus and hurl it. And that would be hilarious and apparently Batman-esque. Oh, he has a giant penny in the Batcave. Okay. That's like a thing. He's like a... (laughs) I believe you. (laughs) Um, That sounds like it would hurt. Yes. Um, And I'm Neil Miller. And uh, when I made up this question, I didn't have an answer for it. But then I looked around my desk and I was like, oh, my God, my one one Funko Pop figure would be hilarious because it's like bringing one one to life. But he's already filled with arrows. But I would make it huge, like like 25 feet tall. Huge and round Funko. Yep. Mm. (laughs) Big bobblehead like waving around. We're talking about things we're going to make big, because this week we're talking about Ant-Man and the Wasp, the sequel to Marvel's Ant-Man, the first movie to take place uh, in our time after uh, Avengers Infinity War. Uh, And then also this week, if you're one of our Patreon subscribers, you'll be hearing a bonus segment about patriotism, because it's the 4th of July weekend, and it's time to see- Dave, you gotta say the name that we came up with. It's patriotism reflux for the bonus segment. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's Fourth of July weekend, which means let's have a fun movie that maybe isn't about killing half the people on in, in the planet. Back, it's a return to Marvel's lightest franchise, uh, Ant Man and the Wasp. First Ant Man was kind of a palate cleanser after Avengers: Age of Ultron, which was another Avengers movie that took itself very seriously. And this one kind of feels like a palate cleanser after uh, the heaviness that was Infinity War's ending. We're going to be talking about it a little bit without spoiling it in the first segment, and then in the second segment, we're going to spoil it and talk about what it means for the rest of the MCU, because yes, there are some connections that gonna probably spoil consequential. It, um, I'm going to spoil it in real time for the one of us who has not seen it yet. Yes, that's me. true. Neil's Can't wait. Go- Neil's going to be playing the part of you, the listener who has not seen it, Man and the Wasp, uh, to uh, to ask some questions and probe, probe the minds of Joanna and I. But first, we have Joanna with reviews. Hi, guys. Uh, I will not torment you with accents this week. Uh, we have two reviews I'm going to read. Uh, the first one is B Banks 2121. Five stars. The title of the review is Ultimate Chocolate Chip Cookies. Ingredients. Three-quarter cup granulated sugar, three-quarters cup packed brown sugar, one cup butter or margarine, softened, one teaspoon vanilla, one egg, two and a quarter cups all-purpose flour, one teaspoon baking soda, one half teaspoon salt, one cup coarsely chopped nuts, one package, 12 ounces, semi-sweet chocolate chips, two cups. Step one, heat the oven, 375 degrees. Mix sugar, butter, vanilla, and egg in a large bowl. Stir in flour, baking soda, and salt. Dough will be stiff. Stir in nuts and chocolate chips. Drop dough by rounded tablespoonfuls, two inches apart onto an ungreased cookie sheet. Step four, bake eight or 10 minutes until light brown centers will be soft. Cool slightly, remove from cookie sheet, cool on wire rack. That is the entirety of the review. Uh, wait, wait, was it five stars? Uh-huh. Oh, um, that, excellent. Well, what I want to tell you is that I know with 100% certainty 
that this is the Nestle Toll House recipe from the back of the package because it is the, it is the recipe <laughs> we made as children. And I want to I want to plus this review from B Banks twenty one twenty one with the modifications that like uh we and my family do, which is instead of three quarters cup granulated sugar, three quarters cup packed brown sugar, use all brown sugar. So it's a cup and a half of brown sugar, no white sugar in it. Uh, instead of a, a cup and a quarter of flour, just or two and a, two and a quarter cups of all-purpose flour, just do two cups. Take off, knock off a quarter cup of flour because that'll make it too like cakey and stiff. You want like a softer cookie if you want to spread a little bit more. Just not like leave off uh, a quarter cup of flour. And then the last tip I will use from the Robbins family household is um, use salted butter, even though most of the time when you bake, you should use unsalted butter. But use salted butter, but leave the salt in the recipe out. So n- don't add salt, but use salted butter. And that's how you make the Robbins family modification of the Nestle Toll House recipe that B. Banks 2121 decided to put into this Storm Smothers review. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just thought it was funny, and I watched. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that is a that was a segment. I got to be honest. There was a point while you were reading that where I was like, "Is she still doing reviews, or did I miss something?" I know. Um, yeah. And then, um, you guys don't seem really pleased about that bit, but there's maybe someone at home who just got like good tips on how to make chocolate chip cookies. So, oh no, I um, listen. I'm pro chocolate chip cookies all the way. I'm just confused. <laughs> yeah, it's just not way it's it's not when you're expecting it. It's like somebody is like uh you know, hands you a bottle of water and you drink it and you realize it's vodka and you're like, "Why would you do that?" And another person's like, "Why would you assume it was water?" That's basically what happened. This is like the Spanish Inquisition of cookie recipes. Exactly. The the Monty no Python Spanish it. Inquisition, not the real <laughs> Spanish Inquisition of cookies. I mean, I don't think anyone expected the original one either. Or the, inqu- the the cookie inquisition of uh, 1647. I think sure. this is the second week in a row where read reviews has become give Joanna shit corner. So uh, let's, yeah. I, we're not even giving you a hard time. This just, we're, it's weird. We're making we, we it just, weirder. We started yes anding each other <laughs> and now we're caught in this loop of uh, basically like improv podcasts thanks to that cookie review. I'm so sorry that we ruined your segment. Uh, yeah, it's I, I don't think we ruined it. I think this is all this is all a plus. This is like the the, the, the Lynch podcast <clears throat> of Ant-Man and the Wasp. Uh, okay. All right. Uh, cookies. We got them here on Star Wars Spoilers. We're also a pop culture podcast. We're Neil. Wait, was there a second one? Uh, I, I'm just going to leave it there. <laughs> I feel like oh. I, I oh. feel like there's no more winning for me in this in this particular. What? No, you oh, have no, to no. Second if, one if there's now. another review, yeah, yeah. Hit, hit me you with can, another review. I did not mean to cut anybody off in this situation where we're not even giving you that hard of a time. Nope, Everybody knows you it. turn in you turn <laughs> into the skin. <laughs> All right. Well, now let's try shaming Neil into silence for his segment called oh, Storm that's Chasing. Oh, not gonna work. Uh, okay, cool. We're back to storm chasing, which means we are chasing some kind of storm, uh, movie, show, book, story, podcast, etc. Mine is more of a theoretical, literal idea. Uh, it's about Comic-Con. I wanted to mention some Comic-Con stuff, but it starts with, it's um, just like my opening, uh, very Funko Pop related uh, in that they announced, Funko announced this week that they're going to have a Lady Olena Funko for the first time, but it is an exclusive 
San Diego Comic-Con pop, which I find unfair because I'm not going to San Diego Comic-Con. So this is me. This is where I start trying to find someone to get me one of these. Uh, it's oh, most if likely only there was someone on this podcast who was going to Comic Con. It's and most you likely didn't give them shit five minutes ago. Not going to be Joanna. <laughs> also, don't put Joanna through that. I know. I w- actually would not even ask Joanna because I know she's probably going to be super busy at Comic Con. I'm going to ask somebody who's going for fun, um, so that they can uh, stand in line for an hour and just to get me a stupid Funko Pop. Uh, but they they're going to have the Lady Olena. And then there's also a very adorable, you know, they have the Dorbs, which are the littler ones. Oh, yeah. Um, They have a four pack of dragons. And you might say to yourself, but Neil, there's only three dragons. But there's four versions of dragons because there's a Drogon, a Viserion, a live Viserion, and Rhaegal, and then... They have an ice version of Drogon, which I find very uh, actually terrifying. Ice ice version of Viserion, right? Viserion, yes, sorry. Uh, The one who got turned into an ice dragon. Uh, So those are cool. Um, But we also, I also wanted to bring up Comic Con in another context in that HBO is skipping this year. They are one of a bunch of uh, different networks and studios. Uh, so I wanted to throw it out there and see if you guys had any thought. HBO's skipping, Marvel is skipping. Uh, we're not getting any Outlander. Um, so is this is this a big deal? I I feel like for Joanna it might be a big deal because you're going to cover. So the less big stuff that's there, the less interesting it might be to cover. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that'll give you time to go to other panels. What What are your thoughts on that? I think it's kind of a lackluster con, uh, if I'm being honest, because like what that leaves then is um, Warner's, which is great because they'll have uh, Wonder Woman 1980. Was it 1984? What what? 80, yeah, the year is it? Um, so you know, Wonder Woman will be there. That'll be fun. Uh, the Warner's presentation will be, you know, it's they'll a- also announce 14 more DC movies that they're never going to make. Yeah. It'll be fun time. Uh, the Universal presentation, actually, I think will be kind of fun because uh, they've got some horror stuff um, that they'll be talking about. Um, spoiler alert for my section that's coming next. Uh, I'm really excited about Castle Rock being there for Hulu. Um, but oh, like overall, I, I don't know. I'm just feeling like a little... Um, yeah, Universal has Halloween and Glass, and I'm really excited about those. There's going to be some Doctor Who stuff because we've got our new Doctor Who premiering, so that's going to be fun. Ooh. There's also like the weird cloud over Comic Con of like Chris Hardwick, who usually hosts like most of the Hall H panels, um, is not presenting. You know, so like that's it's it's just a. Uh, it's an odd year at the old Comic Cons, but that being said, I mean they'll have Walking Dead stuff. They'll have a lot of other stuff. But like that being Listen, said, I'm sure Kevin Smith isn't that busy. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, like I don't know what Game of Thrones would have done because they would have just said like, uh, you know, we can't talk about anything, right? It would be another year where they send a bunch of actors who aren't either on, not on the show anymore or who are the good ones at not talking about their right. Sc- you know scripts and stuff and they can't say anything about westworld because they like don't even, i don't think they even know like you know so it's wouldn't like, it be great if they had a panel and they just like paid tom holland to show up and answer questions about what he thought was going to happen <laughs> on game of thrones oh my god that'd be the best um yeah so i i don't know it's um 
it's a it's a it's gonna be interesting it's gonna be an interesting year but maybe maybe that'll like that you know the people who have been complaining for years that comic-con has gotten like too uh splashy panel heavy and they want to like they they fondly recall the days when it was like you know for the fans <laughs> like costume focused and vendor focused and stuff like that so maybe like for those people it definitely will be a better con it, maybe it'll be less crowded because there will be like you know th- some of those marquee things are not happening you know and that sort of stuff so you know perhaps it will be like a, a actually a much more fun con but yeah neil's right for me who has to like try to generate stories out of it it's a little bit more challenging this year. yeah yeah i feel like if if i were going um as a person who is the person who assigns myself stuff i would be kind of excited because i'd be like oh cool i can finally go to like the supernatural panel which is always probably great um but uh it wouldn't be good business decision yeah Mm -hmm. okay that's that's where i'm at (laughs) cons are complex Um, dave do you ever think you're gonna go back to comic-con it's been uh, I went a while, to, right? I mean, San Diego Comic Con. Yeah, it's been a while. I don't know if I would go back to it. I had made like a deal with myself that if I could avoid having to ever cover it, just a blanket again, or ever, I I would. Uh, uh, but I had, do like conventions and like sort of after you know doing Con of Thrones this year, I was excited to go to Denver Comic Con. And not do a whole bunch of panels, but more hang out on the floor amongst the vendors and whatnot. And, you know, some of my friends were cosplaying, and I found a whole bunch of action figures that I was missing and haggled people down on prices and exchanged a $2 bill that I found for a time turner. It all it all went pretty well <laughs> if you uh, are not there for the news. But I didn't get to, like, see Jason Momoa or anything like that. That was just a super clusterfuck of people. So yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what Joanna comes out of uh, the convention with. I am looking forward to reading her coverage. <laughs> all right, cool. Um, all right, speaking of Joanna, Joanna, what's your storm that you're chasing this week? We've reached the portion of the podcast where you guys try to cajole me out of my uh, ill temper from before. Okay, so... Um, <laughs> is it working? <laughs> I... Um, <laughs> I my my thing that I'm chasing is like super inaccessible, so you're welcome, everyone. But I've been like catching because Westworld's over. I've been catching up on some of like the screeners that I've been neglecting to get ready for whatever summer TV is coming our way. Uh, so the three things that I caught up with this last week are uh, I watched Castle Castle Rock screeners, uh, Sharp Object screeners, and The Innocence, which is a Netflix sort of sci-fi fantasy uh, YA kind of thing with um. Uh, you know, that guy. <laughs> oh, no. Um, hold on. I'm going to Google someone's name. That's uh, Guy Pierce. God, it went out of my head, but I remembered it before I hit Google. So that's great. Guy Pierce. Uh, anyway, so, uh, I, I'm going to leave the, that one off and I will just say that, um, I'm really excited for all of us to talk about Castle Rock. I think it's truly extraordinary. I'm really, really excited about it. I think it's really good summer television. And then I'm also obviously excited to talk about Sharp Objects. That's like a little bit more highbrow prestige but, you know, uh, we've been reading the book in, in like the Patreon book club and stuff like that. So I'm excited. I think there's going to be like good discussions and good kind of bookish discussions because there's all these great Stephen King book references in Castle Rock. Good bookish discussions to be had about these, like these two sort of big summer TV shows that are coming. So I am very excited for all of you guys to get there with me and then we will talk about it here and elsewhere. 
Mm, is Castle Rock, is it doing book references or movie references or both? Can you, do we know at this point? I would say both, but I would say probably a lot. There's probably even more book references that are going over my head because I'm not like, um, if you listen to our Stephen King episode, not a Stephen King expert by any stretch of the imagination. But there are definitely, and and yeah, there's definitely references that I'm not catching. So I can't wait for like the King fanatics to see it. But what I was telling Dave off air was like, the references that are there, none of them feel, only one of them, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, a character name made me roll my eyes. And that's the only time I rolled my eyes at a reference. Otherwise, it all like really feels like it serves the plot and serves the characters, and the plot and the characters are compelling in their own right. So um, I, I've just got like sucked in, and yeah, there's like there's so much, so many references to Shawshank Redemption and all this sort of stuff, but like it's all orga- feels super organic except for literally one thing, and that's I've seen four episodes so far, and so. I hate references that like feel like they're smacking you over the head. And um, so I just, I'm really, I really admire the way that they've, they've crafted this. It feels, it feels so Stephen King to me um, in terms of a lot of the themes that we talked about in that Stephen King episode that we did uh, many months ago. So nice. I'm, that actually makes me more excited to see it because as someone who is even less of a Stephen King person than you are, yeah, like, I I think Castle Rock sort of would have floated by me unless someone told me, hey, this is good, even if you're not like a huge like, Stephen King nerd. Let me say something vaguely without being worried about bringing any kind of embargo, like like to to speak to everyone who's probably listening to this, which is that if you saw the movie It, which I think most of you did because of the box office, I would wager most of you listening saw the most recent adaptation of It. Um that idea of, I mean, we've only seen it part one in the theaters, but that idea of like how childhood trauma turns you into like kind of an irrevocably broken adult is just one of many things, you know, like I, I recognize it. I'm like, oh, that's the it stuff. That's it right there. Um, but done in a new enough way that like, and, and, and that's an interesting enough story to, to retell that um, I'm really excited it's there, but it's not like there's no like clown involved. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not that, but it is that if that makes sense. Actually, thematically referenced. you've it. now further sold it to me because you just said it was a bunch of stuff that I'm kind of okay with. And you said that there's no clown. So <laughs> yeah. great. Bill Sarsgaard's Bill not playing a clown. <laughs> GTFO with the clowns <laughs> is all I'm saying. <laughs> Uh, this week I finally got around to catching up, uh, with Luke Cage season two on Netflix, which as you know, my co-hosts have all watched the other defenders series. I'm assuming, uh, was probably this one and Jessica Jones part two. Our second season coverage hasn't been as complete, I think, because the Netflix shows haven't shown, uh, a whole lot of interest in becoming something other than what they were their first seasons. And I think Luke Cage sort of also uh, falls into that hole where the most interesting things that happen are actual developments or team-ups, uh, but those are sadly sparse in what else is in what is another series where we're stuck in like the same four locations with the same three characters talking to each other. Uh, I will report back to say that they might have fixed Iron Fist, uh, what I know, that's, it's amazing. That's what I've heard. I've heard it from a number of people that Danny Rand's fun in this. 
They, he shows up for one episode. I believe it's episode 10 of uh, season two. And maybe if you want to jump in and uh, not watch the rest of the season, that might actually be okay. I think they, there's enough retreading of everything that's happening all the time that you'd sort of be able to pick it up. Uh, but yeah, they've sort of made him uh, a little bit more laid back. Uh, he's found his inner stillness. And is now able to, you know, kind of be a bit more chill. And uh, he and Luke Cage, you know, fight like Iron Man and Power Man, finally. And have, like, some super-powered moves that involve them fighting as a team. So it's... They might have fixed it, but just having him be in other people's shows and not have to bear the burden of what these Netflix shows unfortunately do, which is, like, only having one major conflict over 13 hours... Uh, instead of breaking it up like a traditional superhero show and having multiple conflicts or a big bad over the season means that there's always this mid-season sag where someone's needlessly being held in jail or they're all stuck in a hospital because they need to do a bottle episode in the middle of the ninja season. Uh, That sort of problem still exists in Luke Cage season two. Uh, Also, I'm not Jamaican. I don't know how much what I'm watching is sort of like almost minstrelly in terms of non-Jamaicans playing really out there Jamaican caricatures uh, but there are also some of the Jamaican characters that have been fully fleshed out as people so I don't know for sure that that's problematic but there's a uh, part of me that watches a lot of media that is like surely they could have found Jamaican actors to play these really heavily Jamaican accented characters that are using slang uh yeah it's it's interesting interesting choice luke cage but you know if you're gonna try something i guess jamaican is good enough i think it's just the season sort of sometimes feels a little bit too much like it's doing black exploitation not commenting on black exploitation you decide for yourself luke cage season two on netflix now <laughs> and with that we get to the cinema side of Marvel, which has been in chaos, guys. I don't know if you saw Infinity War, but all of our favorite people are dead. Uh, and that does not include... Definitely staying that way. Yep, going to be dead forever. Uh, that does not include uh, Scott Lang, Ant-Man, or Clint Barton, Hawkeye, who did not appear in Avengers Infinity War. They were on house arrest, and because they have families, they were given a better deal than our superheroes that had to go on the run, yada, yada. Uh, Joanna, where did we leave off in the world of Ant-Man that is immediately the setting of Ant-Man and the Wasp? Where did we leave off? It's a pop quiz, hot shot. Uh, oh, uh, well, so Scott is under house arrest. Is that the right answer? Okay, so it starts off... <laughs> <laughs> Scott's under house arrest. He's got an ankle monitor, but he's in a better place with his family, his daughter, uh, his ex-wife, Judy Greer, and her partner, Bobby Cannavale, uh, than he was in the past. Eh? Uh, I was going to say they revisit <laughs> him going to the quantum realm at the beginning oh. of the movie so they could plant him having actually come in contact with Wasp at the end of the first movie because there's going to be some quantum entanglement in order to uh, draw Scott into the actual plot, which is actually more 
of a movie about Evangeline Lilly and Michael Douglas uh, finding their uh, mother, wife uh, in the quantum realm through some uh, like classic goofy science. Like I don't think I've seen science that makes this little sense, but then also leads to such fantasticness since like, I don't know, crazy fringe episodes, I guess. Uh, it's, it's like a it's a goofy science heist movie and unlike i think the first ant-man movie which uh edgar wright was developing uh initially for phase one of the marvel movies and then obviously didn't end up bringing it all the way through this one has a consistent voice from the ant-man team and they kind of know how to do shrinking and growing i think better the first movie had some great uh photography that was fake miniatures and then like some obviously full cg work this movie actually has fun with the conceit of growing and shrinking and i think is that much better for it of not having to be an origin story of not having to tie so much into the mcu of like having you know michael douglas be a former shield agent uh but instead we get a nice little family heist movie, which I think the first movie could have been if it had a little bit more consistency in its production, where Scott Lang is sort of the tagger on to what is actually a Evangeline Lilly film, I would say. Uh, <laughs> That's Dave spoiling a question we were going to address later, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. N- Neil Strike is Evangeline Lilly, the real hero of this movie, off your list of questions to ask. <laughs> <laughs> You could have a contrasting opinion, Joanna. Is Evangeline Lilly the real hero of this movie? We're not at that question yet. I don't know. I'm not ready. Oh, oh, but he, we just struck it. We're going to strike it without answering it? We'll come back to that. Yeah, Neil, take, still, over, this, take over this have, segment. I still have more questions about Evangeline Lilly being the star of this movie and what that means. Um, but I have other more specific questions that I'd like to know since I did not see Ant-Man and the Wasp. Uh, one, is Roose Bolton in that giant ant, giant man scene from the trailer where he's chasing down uh, no. Walton Goggins? That's not Roose Bolton? That's a guy named Goran Caustic, and he does look like Michael McElhatton, but it is not Michael McElhatton. It is Goran Caustic. Oh, man. We were very close to having him in both comic universes, universes yeah. as a random bad guy which i thought was great uh and also goes Lo- uh, really well with the vampire theory yeah lovely um lovely friend of the pod I'm, I'm, i'll call her friend of the pod who cares uh karen Hahn pointed that out to me on twitter because i took a screen grab of it from the trailer because it looked to me like it was walt goggins and michael Ma- michael hatton in a car and i was like i was like bruce bolton and <laughs> boyd crowder are like you know, B-level villains in this movie? Yes! And then Karen's like, P.S., that's not Michael McElhatton. If anyone knows uh, Irish or British actors, it's Karen Hahn. So she uh, she pointed that that's out. That's true. Yeah. Um, awesome. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about Ghost, because I'm, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by just the sort of... I don't... It's not, like, sneaky. Like, they didn't sneak women into the leading roles and both leading roles in this movie uh they did it very obviously but it is sort of um an evolution for marvel uh in sort of a production way in that they specifically changed ghosts from the comics right they changed the gender of ghosts oh is ghost a dude in the comics i believe right so there? yeah yeah okay. so they changed it to a female villain which i thought was obviously an interesting choice um so i'm i'm curious as to 
Is Ghost an effective villain? Where does Ghost rank compared to the other Marvel villains? Because Marvel having a villain problem is a thing we constantly talking talk about. So I'm interested how you feel about Ghost in this movie. I think Ant-Man still has a villain problem, but it's not really a problem. Because <laughs> like... It, because as well, Dave, it's go- it's a goofy yeah as, do- as Dave said this is like a goofy fun series so the fact that like there isn't like a I would say one strong antagonist that we're pushing against the antagonist is like separated families is <laughs> the antagonist you know what I mean hmm. um yeah. and so I mean <laughs> it's uh, relevant yes yeah, so, yeah absolutely <laughs> so um so yeah so I I would say Ghost is not exactly strong you have like some amalgamation of a threat between walt goggins and uh this character this ghost character um and the feds i guess um but the um like do we need this uh, do we need to have a, a woman in this leading villain role in order to um like make it okay that evangeline lily tries to kick the shit out of her which is sort of this thing that i talked about with infinity war where you had to have like women fighting the like female hench woman you know what i mean like that that's often a thing you see in action movies is like if if there's like a woman action hero there needs to be like a woman on the evil side so that they can kick the shit out of each other i but i will say and i don't think this is a spoiler because it happens like super early on so i i don't i think it's okay to not have it on the spoiler section i was watching evangeline lily fight ghost and um or hope fight ghost and I was like rolling my eyes and I was like, oh, of course, we're having two women fight. And then like Scott hops in and then it's like two on one and they're just like trying their best to wail on her. And I was like, okay, maybe not. It's like, you know, they're they're okay watching, like showing us like Paul Rudd trying to land some punches on this woman. So, you know, I don't know. So. But it, it's better, though, if it's Paul Rudd getting his ass kicked by just about anybody. Sure. Why not? Because that's that's Paul Rudd's sort of sweet spot. It's true. It's true. <laughs> Uh, Dave, do you have any thoughts on on the gender swap swap of Ghost? I mean, I like the gender swap, and I like the re-origin tale because I think that tying it to... uh, Ghost in the comics is a technology-based villain and therefore came in through Iron Man. Uh, And I think making it an Ant-Man villain and the way they tie it to like the quantum nonsense uh, by just really throwing around that word... Uh, there's even like a self-referential joke about how much they use the word quantum and just like to hand wave away like a plot device. I think it actually kind of works. Uh, I think her visuals and her overall goal in the story uh, really helps and uh, forwarding the plot along by the end. Uh, but when f- she first shows up, she's just like uh, a heist buried within another heist uh, that reveals like a whole other dimension to the movie, which you're right because it's not a full antagonist. It feels kind of weird. So it never feels like we are fully invested in anyone's goals because there's so many cross goals and it's really more a comedy of watching everybody try to intersect with each other until they finally do. Um, I do think that this character has much more promise the way it uh, she came to screen than uh, he does in the comics. Cool. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and there is, I mean, like, it is cool. I, once again, I don't think this is a spoiler because it's just in the trailer, but, like, the way that Ghost phases sort of in and out does create, uh, what 
were we just talking about? Oh, Incredibles. It does create these interesting action set pieces, right? It's not just like two, which you already have in an Ant-Man movie when you have characters who can get big and small, like at any given second in a fight. So you already have this like really interesting dynamic of like uh, largely Evangeline Lilly, but both of them really like uh, expanding and, contra- and contracting as they fight. Uh, but then uh, when you add to that, like a, uh, a, person that might be solid or might like be something that you're punching through at any given moment and you don't really know uh because like you know it's not a controlled thing that also creates very interesting like action possibilities if that makes sense yeah towards towards the end of the movie there's a lot of fighting where it's like sometimes they'll hit her and sometimes they won't and that adds that's done really well in terms of choreography yeah I like that. And, uh, you know, I I revisited Ant-Man, the first Ant-Man this week. And, and I think one of the overwhelming things is, like, there's not really, a like, a rogues gallery for Ant-Man. So they are really sort of starting from... It's kind of like the Iron Man problem. Like, Iron Man doesn't have a lot of, like, great villains, right? as far as I can tell. Um, same thing with Ant-Man, where it's, like, a lot of it's just... You know, it's 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 Ant Man's the uh, the character who's sort of plagued by his own shit. Um, so it's like mistakes I made that created villains. So I think it's it's interesting and cool that they're still making at least villains that are interesting in a action way. And they're kind of sticking to that in the sense that Hank Pym is still very much haunted by what you're talking about is the characterization of the comic book Ant-Man. So it's like, and we're, they're not full going full on and making him a wife beater or anything like that. But in terms of fidelity to the character, sort of like being cursed with not only being a genius, but constantly having had made the wrong decision, I think is starting to come, or it definitely comes through more in this movie than it did in the first movie. Nice. Um, okay. So tell me more about the other villain who you mentioned who. I feel ashamed in not making a bigger deal out of the fact that Walton Goggins is in this movie. Uh, Joanna's really carrying that torch for the both of us. Well, okay. So, you know, if you, my brand is like big on Justified. I'm a huge fan right. of Justified generally uh, and, and Walton Goggins specifically. Walton Goggins played a character called Boyd Crowder on Justified. And what's been true of and 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 you know he also he came to like a prominence uh, on the shield before justified and also right. currently with justified he did a turn on sons of anarchy that was like really amazing but i feel like goggins has not landed in a film the same way that he like he's just such a big fucking deal uh, for certain like a certain subset of tv watchers but like he he's tried in a couple different projects like um you know the he was in a pair of Tarantino films and um, what's that one American um, uh, American Ultra it was like a that was a bad use of of Goggins like I feel like <laughs> movies have not really figured out how to use Goggins yet I didn't see the most recent Tomb Raider but um, you know I've heard that like maybe that also just didn't quite know how to use what he does really well. I'm not saying that Ant-Man does it perfectly, but he's got this like thick as fucking molasses Southern accent, which is not how he sounds when he's normally speaking, but it is how he sounded on Justified. But so, it like, is a great it's so, Southern accent. It's so good. 
and like you know and he's doing he's like he's not as good as uh boyd crowder on justified because if he were boyd crowder justified this movie would be called um whatever his character's name is because like that person is the person you're rooting for even if he's evil you're not you're rooting for hope when he's giving hope shit you're rooting for hope you're on hope's team at the same time he's just slathering it on so thick and i was just like yes i did not know that walton goggins would be so crowdery in this movie and he really really is and that um you know it's a it's a role that i think could have been uh nothing he made it something it's not like great it's not all-time great uh marvel a B villain, but you know, it, it was more than I thought it was going to be. Dave, did you have any, um, Goggins thoughts? Oh, no, I, I liked him. Uh, especially yes. His two like standout scenes that aren't based on, you know, him being a MacGuffin fairy are the one you're talking about with Evangeline Lily. And then he has uh one with Michael Pena, uh, that becomes like part of a sequence, I guess, that is just really good to watch those two actors get to play off each other because neither of them is mistaking the tone of the movie at that point. Yeah. But they're still allowing it to be a comedy scene, which is uh, like really great. If one or two of those people were off in that scene, I feel like it really would have felt like the movie derailed itself at that point. But because both of those actors, you know, play it to the hilt, um, we get, it feels like a uh, like a breath of fresh air while there's also a, a heist going on, so it ends up working out really well. But yeah, Goggins is the uh, it's like he saw what Sam Rockwell was able to do in Iron Man Two, but mm. actually found a movie that fit that. Yeah, unlike Iron Man Two, which doesn't have room for Sam Rockwell to really cut loose, this one has room for Walton Goggins to you know make his character. Uh, as crazy as possible before he has to, you know, play with a building. <laughs> nice. Um, this is where I was going to ask you guys to tell me all about Michelle Pfeiffer in this movie, but I feel like we should do that in the stormier segment. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's, that's, well, but I, I, I will say if people are ex- probably expecting more Michelle Pfeiffer in this movie than there is in this movie. I mean, but, and that's, that's fair. I yeah. kind of assume that that would be the case just based on my own, knowledge of the way these things usually go um the other thing i want to say though just to, just to piggyback off of what dave said about the michael Pena scene um i was slightly less of a fan of that scene actually because mm, it felt a little pandery to me because it's like hey you know that thing you liked in the first movie because it felt fresh we're gonna do it again and we're gonna hit it really hard and i was like mm, i i'm okay I didn't need this. I don't know. The Michael Pena exposition bombs. Yeah. Yeah, But everyone's like, when Evangeline Lilly's playing those scenes and, you know, having to match his voiceover, she's also playing it like full tilt. Well, that's what I'm saying. They're like, you know that thing you liked in the first one? We got everyone in the cast involved this time. It's bigger and better and louder. Oh, that sounds fun, though. Yeah, that's just just movie (laughs) sequel territory. I know. I'm killjoying it. I felt pandered to. I don't like it. That's like Die Die Hard 2 being like, well, instead of a building, it's an airport. It's like, this is the same same mentality. Yeah. Um, I have a a more of an existential question here for you, which is, you know, we we like Edgar Wright, right? All of us, uh, for the most part. Yeah. Um, And I think people, when the first one came out, there was an overwhelming sentiment of like, oh, I wish we would have seen what 
Edgar Wright would have done with this character because he was originally on it before they gave it over to Peyton Reed. So now we have two Peyton Reed movies, right? Mm-hmm. Ish, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, do we feel like Marvel made a good decision? Not yes. necessarily the right yes. decision, but yes. do we feel good about it was good and right for both Edgar Wright and Marvel it was for him good and right not with to make. Yeah. <laughs> hey. Oh, yeah. I guess you have to also consider that we got Baby Driver out of it, which we all liked. Why is well, Edgar just, you Wright? Don't, you, well, I, I liked it a little less than you guys. Why is Edgar Wright threatening us with a Baby Driver sequel? Even if you like Baby Driver, like, it, is, do you need another Baby Driver movie? No, not really. No. Don't do it, Edgar. <laughs> do and literally anything else. I will watch it. Yeah, as like I was saying before, watching what Peyton Reed can do when he has full control of the concepts really has like an assurance of what makes Ant-Man as a hero work visually. And I think Edgar Wright had some of that going on. Like I'm pretty sure the like doubling like the comics. So when he's shrinking, you're actually seeing like transparent versions of him going up and down. Uh, you know, some of the ant writing stuff that all feels like Edgar Wright stuff in hindsight because of the way it was executed in the first movie versus how it's executed in the second movie. This one feels a lot more like a, you know, like a weird spy thriller, which again, the first one, a lot of the first one's problems is that it has to be an MCU movie. And this one, uh, kind of doesn't as much I and mean, there's a lot of references to civil war and then a little bit of uh, infinity war references right right at the very very end uh but it, none of that is tied to who the villain is you know or, or anything like that so yeah i don't i don't i don't know if i wish everybody thought that what we wanted was people to like do crazy like western versions of superhero movies are like adding another genre on top of superhero movies but what marvel's been doing as it's been progressing you know linearly through these phases is even though it may take them a while to get to things they've been stepping very assuredly for the past couple of years so it's not like we're getting you know logan which is straight up superhero over through the lens of shane uh, instead, we're getting something more like this, which feels uh, so much like a 60s comic book that that's what Stanley's cameo is basically referencing is like, this is like weird 60s science heist. And uh, it's not like a subgenre. It's a comic book still. I'm really mad that I uh, you just reminded me that I forgot to do my like Logan Westworld no more guns in the valley mashup <laughs> uh, <laughs> that i had planned to do and then just forgot to do damn it all right anyway um all right fair enough uh, um what i was gonna say um do we miss edgar wright's ant-man i don't think that it, yeah i here's what i'll say I, i'll say it's better for edgar wright than it is for marvel like could marvel benefit from having an edgar wright uh, movie i think yes uh, does edgar wright work well in a like larger system no you know he's he's mm-hmm. got his very distinct vision and so like uh, i i just think that um peyton reed is more the like workman like and i don't mean that as an insult director that they need for this kind of thing even though like taika and um you know ryan coogler i would not call them workman like at all you know when they made it work but like i i still feel like edgar has just been 
at it a little bit longer than Taika and Ryan. And so like, he's just like used to his vision being his vision. And it just makes sense to me that, that, you know, he doesn't fit in this, what this is anymore. Uh, You know, because when they first asked him to do this was at the very beginning when they didn't know that it would be so like constructed. Um, But also I want to say, you know, Dave said that uh, the MCU has been stepping very assuredly for a few years. I feel like the year a lot of people peg the year that Marvel really felt itself was when guardians did well and guardians like divorced so entirely from the Avengers, like gave them the confidence. And a lot of like the Marvel people that I talked to uh, when I wrote a story about the whole MCU thing, like they cited guardians, but like there's a perspective I have where I actually think the year that they like really felt themselves with the year that Dr. Strange and Ant-Man came out because both of those properties felt like uh, a risk. And both of those felt like movies that could, uh, it was 2015 and like Ant-Man had all this really shitty negative press around it. Right. Like it was just like all the Edgar Wright stuff, like everything just like they, they were, they were soldiering through like just a lot of people wanting to it, to not do well, a lot of people bracing for it not to do well, all this sort of stuff like that. And then Doctor Strange, which pushes the envelopes on like dimensionality and all this sort of stuff. And like Benedict Cumberbatch, yes, is like is a draw, but maybe not in a, a, like an MCU level draw. And so I think a lot of people were bracing for Doctor Strange to not do well. And when both of those did like bananas well, I feel like Marvel was like, oh, guess what? We can do fucking anything. <laughs> Bring it. We got this. And so, um, I, yeah, I, I think it's 2015 is the year that they were just sort of like wincingly putting out Ant-Man and Doctor Strange and reaping the rewards on both of those and then going like, okay, here we go. Let's go. Cool. Let's do it. So. Um, well, and, and I you mentioned that there was a lot of like negative press around Ant-Man. Uh, the reason why I wanted to ask this question isn't a, it wasn't even necessarily uh, to reminisce about the Edgar Wright thing, but more like people gave Peyton Reed a lot of shit when that first one, like before the first one came out. And then we saw it and we were like, this is very capably made. It's a pretty good movie. It did well. Um, so I think the, I, I think it's worth revisiting the fact that people gave him a lot of shit and maybe undeservedly, like Absolutely. if he's come through two Ant-Man movies and they're both good, like, well, maybe, what's, he's, maybe it's okay. <laughs> well, what's also true is that like a lot of people in the first Ant-Man, they're like, oh, well, anything good about this movie is left over from Edgar Wright's, you know, like, blah, blah. And like... Excellent point. You know, and Peyton Reed was talking about, you know, I, I heard him give a lot of interviews. I think my favorite on the subject was the one he gave to the Empire podcast. Um, but like... Oh, yeah. We had to plug them. Yeah. Drink. Uh, <laughs> if you're playing, Joanna plugs the Empire podcast. No, but he gave a really good interview where, you know, they were sort of trying to parse through like what was his stuff and what was Edgar's stuff. And he's like, he's like, I don't know that I can really pull it out that way. It's not really that clean or simple. And, you know, but that's something we look for all the time when we're like talking about Joss Whedon picking up from Zack Snyder on Justice League or when we're talking about Ron Howard picking up um, Solo, you know, we're always like, what was them and what was the original and what's, you know, what remains and that it's a natural thing for us to, to wonder about. But I think you're right, Neil, that like Ant-Man and the Wasp and like, I, I think Ant-Man and the Wasp is fun and fine but like given the hot streak that marvel has been on as far as i'm concerned from like thor ragnarok to black panther to infinity war i i would consider ant-man and the wasp like a bit of a downshift from that um in in quality but 
uh, the stakes are lower, so it's sort of it matters less. But like, um, right? It also it's not trying. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's trying to be. It's just trying to be fun and fine. And guess what? It is fun and fine. So like, you know, that's right. That's all. A fine time at the a movies. fun fine time at the movies. But I think that's the same <laughs> thing I said about Solo, and I feel much more positive about this than I did about Solo. But like, um, you know, the uh, I completely lost track of what I was saying. But but you know, Peyton Reed is definitely capable of delivering a fun fine time in the movies. But I mean, the stakes are lower. But I also kind of want to say like, it kind of sucks that um, this is the double standard of like Ryan Coogler has to deliver a perfect film, right? That's the pressure on Black Panther. Black Panther had to be fun and. The action had to be perfect and thematically resonant and emotional and all this sort of stuff and visually cool. And I think he delivered, but Black Panther had to be perfect. And Peyton Reed just has to, Peyton Reed and Paul Rudd just have to deliver a fun, fine time in the movies, which they also did. You know, I was like the double standard on like what, what these two movies have to be like could not be more like glaring from my view. So, <laughs> well, I mean, from the, what it takes to get them going. Yes. But it, the effort, echoes back in box office for both those movies so like ant-man yeah made 500 million dollars it didn't make black panther money because ryan coogler made a different kind of movie right i get what you're saying but i think we're also in a world where it's like p uh peyton reed was brought in as a workman director to fix the first ant-man that movie made enough money that gave him a second ant-man but he very well could have fucked it up because they didn't hire him as a multiple uh, like movie person they hired him to somebody to fix something and then that made it enough money that you can't just be like oh no give it to somebody else that might fuck it up and i so yeah oh, and I, I don't want to insult peyton reed like because i think he's like both a very nice person um and has made like very fine movies you know what i mean so like this is not me like trying to bury him obviously i just i think yeah you know i, I think we're well it shows about- i think it shows that marvel can make movies at different scales yeah and yeah. i think that's important and and i think that even with black panther they kind of did that but they knew that there was a potential that it could be special and ryan coogler sort of made it special and that's why it's like the top grossing at least domestically movie they've made um so far uh infinity war as i saw the other day still in theaters as -hmm. it turns out um so here's a question about double standards do you think this is also an interesting way for them to put their first female hero in the title of a movie which is something we talked about uh, as we prep for this episode because i would think that this way they're going to get a lot more mileage out of attaching the Wasp and, a, and Evangeline Lilly, a character, an actor who we're very familiar with, um, you know, a, a, making her the central piece of the second Ant-Man movie. The, there's less pressure on that in my mind than there is to like whoever has to make the Black Widow movie. Because that's, there's or, like a or lot. Cap- or Captain Marvel. Or Captain Marvel, yes. Yeah. Um, so I think maybe this is a clever way for Marvel to you know, try out the details of that without having to uh, li- without having to deal with necessarily the external pressure that's going to come with a Captain Marvel. I mean, what's kind of true of, I guess it's not exactly true, but I was thinking, I was like, should Captain America Winter Soldier have been called Captain America and Black Widow? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, like, you know, because like, 
uh, Hope has a bigger role to play in this than Black Widow did, uh, but she's got the emotional core, which which Black Widow doesn't in in the Winter Soldier. But I- I'm just saying that Marvel has done like female de facto female leads in movies without putting their name in the title. But Hope not only has like so much great action stuff and she, and and all of it is so good. Like the the shot that's in the trailer where she like zips out of the back window of a car and into like the front window of the driver's seat as she like fights people as like uh she gets bigger and smaller and all that stuff like that. Uh, you know when you watch a trailer a bunch and you're just sort of like your eyes glaze over when that shot comes up because you're sort of like yeah I've seen this in the trailer. Uh, it's as dazzling to me on the screen as it is in the trailer. It's it like all of her action stuff is so good. Um, I think uh, from a polygon's perspective and otherwise, and and just like you know like entirely believable and all the sort of stuff like that and all the themes of the original Ant Man movie, which was about like. Yeah, why is Paul Rudd the lead of this movie? Why is this Paul the Ant Man? Why did he give a suit to this dude when his daughter is the one training him? Like she's she's ticked and rightly so in that first movie. And in this one, you know, you've got stuff like once again, this is in the trailer, so I don't feel like it's spoiling, you know, for her to have wings and for Scott to be like, wait, uh, you know, why does she have you know, like, oh, cause I guess you couldn't have given me wings and you know, and her and Hank's like, nah, I could have, but I gave them to her. She's better. She is, she's better. Um, but she also has, as I said, like the emotional core. You know, it's, it's, it's the emotionality of this movie is about a search for her mom and what that means. And so, like, yeah, Scott's got some stuff. Scott's got some stuff with her, he's got stuff with his own daughter, like all that sort of stuff, but like really it, it, it hopes hope gets the emotional payoff and hope gets like some of the fun action stuff. And it is, you're right, Neil, kind of like a sneaky way to backdoor pilot. Yeah, it's like, just less know. external pressure yeah. around it. I think Yeah, like, they weren't trying to be sneaky. We knew it would be was super coming. easy to have uh, the next movie in the Ant-Man series just be called the wasps and be Angeline Lilly and Michelle Pfeiffer. And I would, uh, I would show up day one. I want nothing else. now. <laughs> 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 but really- or just call it the wasp because uh, they're we- both the wasp right yes they're both the wasp but, but like the wasps, have to be plural the wasps. yeah, mm. yeah. Um, or just wasps um wasps I- uh, and then having two white ladies starring it might be mixed messages <laughs> yeah i was funny. gonna say isn't that some sort of uh white anglo-saxon protestant Right. Yeah, two on um, the nose. <laughs> it's like it's like <laughs> baps. Um so like uh the uh Evangeline Lily is doing this thing on the press tour that uh you know Tessa Thompson also did, which is just talking a lot about this like all female Marvel movie thing on the press tour, which like they should definitely all keep doing that because it just applies more pressure to Kevin Feige to deliver that faster. Um, like I'm sure he is considering it. Marvel just like moves slowly and methodically, but like the more that these actresses talk about it, the more Kevin Feige be- has to be like, yeah, we want to do it and we're going to do it when it feels yeah. like to do it, you know? Um, they better. All I want them to do is to beat the Simon Kinberg, Jessica Chastain projects. That's all they have to do. But like, oh, the uh, the spy movie. But like, but you know, between Black Panther, like the way in which, um, you know, Denai and Lupita and um, all of them were used in Black Panther, and the way that Tessa was used in Thor Ragnarok, and the way that um, Evangelina is used in this, like, it's not, it's not a heavy lift 
to put all those women in a movie and get us excited to go see it. You know what I mean? It doesn't feel like a pander. Uh, it will be a little bit of a pander just the way that Wonder Woman was, but like, but it, like they've earned it with these, these women are great and enormously like, you know, like no, no shit capable and, um, and interesting and emotionally um, interesting. Well, I could get a little bit more dimensionality and Valkyrie and I wouldn't be sad, but um you know, and, and like, it's so nice that it's not just fucking Scarlett Johansson and that's it. Like, it's so great. And it's happened fairly in fairly short order. I mean, to go back to 2015, like, let's just all recall the fact that future Academy Award nominee Rachel McAdams is in that movie. But is she? <laughs> I mean, that was the way that Marvel... Had, I do remember you know, her trying to perform surgery on somebody while benedict cumberbatch ghost version is floating around her yeah Mm, i remember that from dr strange but i feel like that you know that was only like 2015 but i don't think that they would even think about trying to get away with that shit uh now the way it's hilarious that she'd be a bigger character now that's what for sure that's what not only was she in it but that's the reason that rosario dawson can't be called night nurse in the first series of netflix shows because that was technically the night nurse but she went away Never to return to the Marvel Cool, franchise. so it was also dumb. She met the time traveler's <laughs> wife, and away she went onto a different timeline. Cool. Well, that's uh, those are all the calm-related things I wanted to know about Ant-Man and the Wasp. Do you guys have any other calm, friendly thoughts on this movie? It sounds like it's just fun, and I should go see it. Uh, the last fun bit that I'll point... I mean, the uh, as, as Dave called me out about on the... Um, the fallen kingdom episode um this movie has a really good kid it's true great little girl yeah um but also uh randall park as fed like because the fed is like the third so you've got ghost you've got um walton goggins which is like you know a a crime syndicate court sort of thing and then you've got the feds uh chiefly represented by randall park just doing his randall park thing really (laughs) Uh, I think mm-hmm. he, his energy works really well with Paul Rudd's energy, and um, I really liked it. I don't know. I, I man, I, that's a lot of that. That's also sort of some of the secret sauce of the Ant Man movies, I guess. And this is me speaking, having seen half of them, is that you're right. The energy of a lot of these different people kind of matches well with each other. Like yeah. Evangeline Lilly and Paul Rudd, and Michael Pena fits in pretty well, and Michael Douglas is sort of the you know. It, He's, he does better in this film. Yeah, he's very he's, he's very he's dry. Right. He's super dry. It's really fun. Right. I so think. I'm I think that's uh potentially one of the nice things about well, I you know, Marvel's pretty good at that overall. Marvel's good at getting the inner the, the chemistry pretty right. I would say a weird note in this movie, and we'll talk about it in the um spoiler section a bit more, but Lawrence Fishburne, I I feel like they needed like two more passes on the draft to figure out exactly how they were going to incorporate him into the movie. We can't talk about it until we get into spoilers, but uh, it's it's a, he's not just a size queen uh, as he is he in has, the trailer. He let's more than, let's use this and he has get into l- spoilers. Well, I'm just gonna say he has more than literally one scene, which is what's in the trailer. So yes, cool. Should tell me about it right after the break. <laughs> All right, Lawrence Fishburne, Goliath in the comics, would was initially someone who could grow like Giant Man. So I was thinking, yes, if he's the Goliath and his trailer scene is about how big he could grow, of course, we're going to have a scene in this movie where Lawrence Fishburne grows or shrinks. That doesn't happen. 
Uh, instead, Aww. he's he's like the former partner of Hank Pym, which makes him sort of a good guy, but he's helping Ghost uh, because she her parents died in like a illegal experiment to try to replicate they were some also Pym tech. Partners with Pym, right? Yes. <laughs> well, the, I think it, they were old Shield. So her parents were old Shield members. And uh, Fishbird's character was a partner when he was just doing Pym particles. So the older partner, it doesn't matter. It felt it's very unnecessarily confusing. complicated. I feel like they could have cut out the middleman and just made her his daughter, like, without, you know what I mean? Like, found out a way that, like, because his, like, she, the reason why he hates Hank Pym is not only what happened to this young girl, who, like, the reason why she's ghost is because of, like, a Pym experiment gone wrong and her parents died in it. But, like, and he became, like, a, her guardian, basically. as a So he's, like, her de facto father figure. But, like, not only that, but also he's pissed about Janet because, like, he really liked Janet and Janet got lost in the quantum realm, so he's pissed about that. But it's too, co- it's too complicated to have this other set of parents that, like, just die and, like... Uh, Okay, it's Michael Savaris of Broadway fame, but like, who, like, what, what the hell is going on? And so I feel like, and then like his relationship with her is so weird throughout. And so I just feel like if she had just been his daughter, that like maybe everyone thought was dead, but actually she was still alive and ghosty, and he and he's been mad at Hank this whole time because of what happened to his daughter. Like, isn't that isn't that tidier? Why don't we just do that? You know what I mean? Like, I I don't. Understand. I think the only reason why is because then he would have had to have illegally tried to replicate a shield experiment, and then he, that would make him a bad guy. When this story wants to keep him a good guy, despite the fact he's making conflicted decisions, and it's just like he's he's like with her until he's not. He's like, no, I will, uh, you know. And then there's that weird part of the movie where she like threatens uh, Scott's daughter. But then, like, doesn't ever. He's like, well, if you do that, then I, I got to break with you on that. And then she just doesn't. And so then he doesn't. And, and then also the way he uh, she's gets... like, oh, cool. That's the line. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The way he gets cornered in the movie is giant spiders click clack him into an elevator. Ants. Yeah. The ants like come ants. at him and he's yeah, just that's like, right. whoa, whoa. He's like, oh, I can't like, touch ants. Yeah. And then he's just not in this, not in the scene for a while. And then the way their storyline ends in that alleyway. Where she's like, go, you can make it without me. And he's like, no, I won't leave you. And then they hug. And that's the end of their arc. And it's uh, <laughs> strange. It's deeply um, strange to me. First of all, though, I would like to defend ants. Because they can lift up to, what is it, 20 to 100 oh, I, times their weight. I don't think anyone's underestimating ants in this movie. So I'm lar- just saying Large ants would be nothing to fuck with. <laughs> It's weird that like for or, like such a heavily combat based movie that Lawrence Fishburne just looks worried in different locations in this movie. Yeah, it's super weird. <laughs> I mean, they do go to UC Berkeley and that's fun because I'm like, oh, yeah. it's Berkeley campus. But like even Michael Douglas, who is older, is doing things in this movie. I don't understand why Lawrence Fishburne's like, oh, ants, I'm out. Hands up. <laughs> yeah, give give Fishburne a suit. Why not? Yeah, I'm sorry I can't save my uh, surrogate daughter's life because this giant ant's making a creepy noise at me. I, mean, uh. I, I get why, like, thematically, like, we had all these, these like, the the trifecta of families, right? We've got, like, the Fishburn ghost thing. We've got, you know, the, the Pims, and then we've got uh, the Langs. Uh, like, that's that's fun. That's a fun, fine time at the movies. But, like, yeah, just make it, just make it tidier. 
cut out. Interesting. It's, and it's, it is. It's weird. Yeah, this movie's so snappy with like how it's paced. It does sort of feel like we stop and have this flashback sequence to explain why everybody's in that room. So it does sort of feel like a weird pivot in the the middle. Yeah. It is interesting and good on Marvel for figuring this out. Um, that to make their family friendly movie about family. Man, nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, speaking of people who are in families, uh, the, the third member of the Pym family is, uh, perhaps my favorite actress of all time, Michelle Pfeiffer, mm-hmm. who I've been in love with since she was Catwoman, obviously. Yeah, there's this. So tell uh, me about Michelle Pfeiffer in this movie. Her character, her character is in the movie the most as Paul Rudd's impression of Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, uh, I didn't like that. I gotta be honest with you. Well, I mean, I liked it as a character thing. I just didn't like it because I knew it wasn't... Instead, we didn't get Michelle Pfeiffer. I didn't like it because it didn't like... Like, I didn't feel like Paul Rudd was doing a good Michelle Pfeiffer impression. It felt very like Jack Black and Jumanji to me. Like, I was just sort of like this... It felt very like Teen Girl, but not like Michelle Pfeiffer. You know what I mean? Um... Basically. Maybe she was so playful in her de-aged segment that I kind of feel like that's what they were trying to latch on to. They and to de-age be fair, Michelle Pfeiffer. Oh yeah, we just, get just uh, for one flashback right. in a mirror, yeah, yeah, and we it's get, reflected in a mirror. It's fine. It's not that bad. No, no, it's not reflected in a mirror. She kneels down and she's a full-faced close-up of her doing a like visual bit of pretending to fall asleep in front of her daughter. It's like. Classic, classic oh, Catwoman age. Did that Michelle happen Pfeiffer. at the very beginning? Yes. Cool. I was late to the movie. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. sorry. I didn't mean to. I'm sorry that I started. The, yeah, I started the first segment with being like, "What should we remember from the beginning of this oh, movie, Joanna?" Okay. I apologize. <laughs> no, I was. Uh, I was late to the movie and had now. to like talk my way into the screening, and I'm like, uh, "We start with Scott and his family." Uh, oh okay. yeah, no. Sorry. So there's a DH segment with both DH Michelle Pfeiffer and oh. another DH Michael Douglas actually, you know, like saying goodbye to kid Evangeline Lilly. Okay, uh, I, but I they only, didn't de-age Evangeline Lilly. Did they just have a kid? No, it's just a kid. <laughs> Man, and they then should de-age them that way too. Oh, just, just all the way, all the way to childhood. Like child Evangeline Lilly. What would that look like? I uh, <laughs> I only saw the hide and go seek part. So all right, yeah. So that that is also there, and then there is some de-aged Lawrence Fishburne. But point being is like, yes, oh. we don't really see we don't really see enough of uh, the of, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's character to know what she is she's sort of encapsulated and first of all michelle pfeiffer's doing as much as she can with like the seven lines they give her to actually deliver and uh two she is given the magic deus ex machina powers of this movie uh that are not explored before the movie ends both of the both uh, it's it's a it's a double doctor who thing um <clears throat> She's very Amy Pond uh, in that episode where, like, Amy Pond gets stuck somewhere and they come back and she's older. Oh, the girl who waited. Uh, is it the girl who waited? Because that's isn't that the premiere, or is it, is that what it's called, the girl who waited? Because like, well, Amy be. Pond is the girl who waited, but I don't know if it's that, that happens so. to her twice. Because like, yeah, as a kid, and then she comes back and she's she's like a uh, leggy Karen Gillan. But then there's yeah, the one where like they're on the planet and she's like been stuck there fighting stuff. So they come back and she's like badass and wearing armor and has like a stick that she fights people with and like her hair on the side. And I was like, that's exactly what Michelle Pfeiffer is in the in the quantum realm. Um, yeah. But then also. Um, uh, 
Rose Tyler when she gets the like the she absorbs the TARDIS energy uh, mm. a, in the first season that that uh, you know Chris Rackleson and Billy Piper were on, mm-hmm. and she could just heal everyone with glowing whatever because she absorbed this energy. That's what happens to Michelle Pfeiffer has absorbed quantum energy, and she's now basically a, okay a, a good witch. <laughs> so here's I guess <laughs> here's what you're telling me. First of all, there's the Michelle Pfeiffer of my childhood is in this movie. And uh, then, she, well, she's the younger version of Michelle. Yes, Michelle yes. Pfeiffer, M- Michelle. As Pfeiffer. the person who saw the scene, yes. <laughs> okay. Well, does she have so, that yeah. terrible hair that she has in the hide-and-go-seek scene? She's got terrible... Yes, but it looks like it looks like Michelle Pfeiffer. Like, not, everybody made bad hair decisions in the 90s. It looks like... Catwoman no, with a like, wig on. She's got like terrible. They gave her like bad, like Farah Farah hair. It's bad. Okay. Anyway, go ahead. That's, anyway, that's just the so hair. then you're All telling right, me okay. that Michelle, like nowadays, Michelle Pfeiffer shows up and is basically uh, Superman. Yeah. <laughs> or is basically Doctor Who. Uh, you're right. It's called it. that episode's called The Girl Who Waited. Sorry, I nice. ever doubted. Oh, you. Nice. I feel so good yeah, about my Doctor Who knowledge yeah. right now. I feel good about it too. You I, I feel job. bad um, about doubting you. But uh, so okay, so like I was pretty much in on the whole column segment when you guys just told me that it's like fun. But um, now I'm super in. Like even <laughs> though she's not in it as much as I want it, I feel like that's still good stuff. Yeah. Deus Ex Michelle Pfeiffer. Well, she's good, and like you, and you know that she's coming like she's on the poster you know you know what's going to happen when michael douglas goes into the quantum realm he will find sure. michelle pfeiffer and still and yet and it's like the movie's almost done and still and yet when she shows up you're like yay hi and she looks so great with her like amazing gray wig and she's just like um yeah she's what a great presence to have in the movie um, this movie does so much to like build her up I am super sad that they're probably not going to make her like front and center in the next adventures. Um, <laughs> because that I don't know why they great. don't just do take Joanna's idea and do the wasps. That was your yeah. idea. Dave's idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and the um, I will say I think the last fight, which is takes place around Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco, um, like there's some really fun concepts with the fact that like the lab can be shrunk and so like the building is like the size of a <laughs> you, you remember you remember big when the executives <laughs> like this building transformer and tom hanks is like who would want to play with a building the entire last third of this movie wants to play with a building yeah <laughs> and it's like a big you know the rock-esque chase through this you know the streets i will say though there's a gag with lombard street that like my san francisco audience like really really ate up with a spoon yay lombard it's twisty still twisty um so like the san francisco cheese but there's just so many pieces that play in that because you've got the feds and then you've got the gangsters and you've got michael pena and his associates and then you've got like ghosts and you've got lawrence fisher like it's too much i would say in the final scramble around, uh, you know, the suitcase and all of that. That's you- probably the one thing I did not expect to hear uh, either of you say is that there's like too much going on in an Ant-Man movie, which so I, that's fascinating to me. I mean, do you I think disagree it's, with me, Dave? I don't know. I, for me, it worked as there was a point where the movie stops berating you with the plot and you have to just follow it. So like a lot of stuff is happening at like the same time. 
And, you know, much like, uh, I don't know, in, it's not clearly done like Inception. So you have like this huge fight going on and the building's getting thrown around. And then you cut to Hank Pym, who's in the quantum realm, but technically also miniaturized inside the miniature building. And he can't grow to normal size until the building's normal size. So he's like waiting for this signal to that the building's normal size. But oh, no, maybe the building's going to end up at the bottom of the ocean. There's just like a lot happening that if you're, I, I, I don't know if it holds together timing or reason wise, but the snowball effect of it uh, worked fine on me. Um, and then uh, do we want to talk about the, the variant? Oh, let's talk about the variant and how yes. this connects to the Marvel Cinematic well, Universe. So before we get to like Dave, uh, well, first of all, Dave is right, and it's always fun when Dave's right. As I tweeted when I got out of the movie, I just like I like sitting in a movie theater and being like, "This is what Dave said would happen." Um, but <laughs> um, it's really fun. It's nice to know you, Dave. I like you very much. But the uh, the one thing I want to say, sort of more broadly, before we get to like the very specifics that Dave is so good at about like what this means, is like the way in which this film is almost entirely divorced from what's going on in the larger MCU, I think is indicative of a, of a larger trend in the MCU. And, and please feel free to disagree with me, all of you, but like, um, whereas I feel like, okay, so, so Kevin Feige a decade ago starts the Marvel cinematic universe. And he's like, what if we do these movies? Oh my God. What if these movies are like actually like really super connected? Okay. Like what if we like build this complicated web of like all this sort of stuff and you have to like track all this stuff and we do these big crossover movies and it's really, really fun. This is actually, I think a point that I made in another movie that Dave, uh, podcast episode that Dave disagreed with me about, but like, I feel like now we're seeing the reverse of that and an unhooking and like the movies like, Thor Ragnarok was largely divorced from the larger MCU. Homecoming, because it's a Sony thing, yes, but like Spider-Man Homecoming, you know, yeah, Iron Man's there, but largely, like, you could watch Homecoming without watching anything and, like, get what's going on. You could watch Thor Ragnarok, actually, I think, kind of, uh, without watching anything and know what's going on. Definitely watch Black Panther uh, without watching anything and know what's going on, and I think the same is true of this. You, like, you hopefully you've seen the first Ant-Man, but I don't think you need to have seen a lot of everything else in order to understand what's going on in this. And I think that basically the business model of super franchising this was very important to the MCU at the beginning or this idea of doing this. And now I think they're trying to, now that Marvel is like must-see movie going and every Marvel movie is going to do well. They have that built-in audience. Now I think they're sort of poking out and seeing if they can pull in even more people. Like, let's not um, only bring in the people who are going to invest in watching every single Marvel movie. Let's make Black Panther and make it in a way that, like, people can come see this movie who would not ordinarily see a Marvel movie. And let's make Ant-Man for people who, like, love a, a fun, zippy Paul Rudd comedy um, or a heist movie, but maybe don't think that they like comic book movies. Or, you know, and the way in which the franchise is... is uh, further diversifying its leads, like with the Captain Marvel movie coming and stuff like that, like the way in which it's trying to appeal to other demographics in the way in which it represents who can lead a comic book movie, I think is part of that too. And I really do think we are going to see in a post uh, Avengers 4 world, just the continuing spreading out 
of these standalone films rather than uh, the intensive crossover hooking up that really, uh, you know, Dave and I may still disagree to the degree uh, to which it did this, but really burdened Ultron um, in a way that made it not a very successful movie as far as I'm concerned. So those are sort of my like larger picture thoughts about what the, I think the MCU is intentionally doing. Please feel free to disagree with me if you want to, but no, I like that. Well, Joanna, let me disagree with (laughs) you. Yeah, I think that you're right in terms that they are like spreading a little bit further out from the mark and that they feel less interconnected. But for me, what that's been is after age of Ultron, uh, each movie has been like super focused on telling like a character story. So that when we get to Avengers infinity war and Avengers four, uh, all the movies surrounding those two movies were built to give us complete character arcs of those people. So, like, the ending of Infinity War doesn't work if you haven't seen Spider-Man Homecoming and know the relationship between those two characters. It's kind of like, I feel I like... I kind of disagree. The- I, like, I, I mean, I think it's better if you know the relationship, but they put it in Infinity War. Like, the whole, kid, I don't want you here... You know, kid, oh, okay, I, I, I like benight you. You're an Avenger now. Here I made you this suit. Like, there's stuff in Infinity War, independent of Homecoming, that establishes that relationship. It's deepened, obviously, by Homecoming, but I think that that you don't need Homecoming to get that from the film. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I would, I would argue that you do. Okay. I think you need Thor Ragnarok in order for what Thor does in Avengers Infinity War to feel like anything but a side quest. I think you need Black Panther in order for the showdown in Infinity War to Wakanda to feel like a big moment when they're all chanting and they say, if this is going to be the end of Wakanda, it'll be a historic one. If Black Panther was a different movie, that line's not a seller and you, you lost like Ooh. the kickoff of your third act. I have so an it's, idea about this. Yeah. Well, so I think you both are right, but I think that there, there's a difference. Um, the The difference is that Marvel is the Avengers movies, the team up movies rely heavily on what happened emotionally in the standalone movies, or it, it you know from a plot standpoint. In the case of like Black Panther and the Ragnarok, but the the standalone movies in the moment feel less feels like there's less weight. So like, it's the difference. It's not even necessarily like the Ultron thing. It's to me, it's like Iron Man two. So like Iron Man two felt super burdened by the fact that it was right. Trying to expand this whole larger universe. And we knew that events of Iron Man two were going to be important later. Um, but Iron Man two also seemed to know that, which was part of its problem. And I think the difference now is that Marvel is sort of, confident enough to let some of these individual stories go in different directions because they know that they can pull it all back together if they need to for an event. Yeah. Movie. Yeah. I like that better than what I was saying. It's that they're They got better at serialized storytelling because Joss Whedon comes from an old storytelling family in Hollywood. And so everything that's referenced in the movie has to connect to something else and everything has to be in the movie for a purpose, which leads to the Avengers being great, but having a really slow start as you kind of get up to ground covering things that you already covered 
in the standalone movies of phase one, but just being like, but now they're together and they don't get along. We kind of didn't need that, but it works because Avengers works as one single movie. Age of Ultron is trying to be as complete, but because it has all this scattershot shit to put together and infinity stones to plant, ends up feeling overburdened. When I don't think it really needs to give us as much on the individual characters as it does, it only needs to do teamwork. And I think at least thanks to Civil War being sort of like a hybrid between the two, where we still had to focus on Captain America mostly, but also moved the Avengers along somewhere. Now that we're at Infinity War, the Rousseaus are telling like the simplest A to B arc, and they have two movies to do it. And all the little sub-arcs that actually make us care about these characters, I don't think they're really in Infinity War. That's what allowed them to do Infinity War like mostly about Thanos, is because we had all these other pods that are making us super invested in the actual heroes. So in one sense, Joanna's right in that it's not like nobody's trying to put piece together Fury's big week when there was like one week in MCU time when he put all the Avengers together and it was across four different movies, but that all happened on the same week because oh, everything's connected. But I do think that going into the Avengers movies, because they're such huge spectacles, they're assuming now at this point, because Marvel is a thing that they're, the people who are in it for superhero team-ups are also catching the bits and pieces. And so maybe it's okay to make them more standalone looking because they're going to be essential in the future anyway. And what you and I disagreed on um, in the other podcast was the idea that like, I don't think we're going to see team-up movies the same way we have after Avengers 4 is over. And you think we are. And like, I think we're going to see stuff like, you know... Uh, the Wasp and Valkyrie and, and the, you know, the ladies of Wakanda and stuff like that, um, team up. Like, we're going to see something like that, but nothing quite as heavy as what some of these Avengers crossovers have been. I think Marvel, uh, my prediction, and we have no, you and I have no evidence one way or another. My prediction or my sense is that we're going to, what Kevin Feige is promising when he says, everything's going to look a lot different after Avengers 4 is over is like a, a further move away from that. But I agree with both of you that like, and I agree with you, Dave, that like in infinity war, the Wakanda stuff and the Thor stuff really does rely on these two movies that just immediately preceded it. I still, I would still push back a little bit on, I think they did the Peter Parker work themselves. And I think that that might even just be because like, it's, not entirely their movie, the <laughs> homecoming, you know what I mean? Like maybe, maybe they're like, uh, well, this one we'll, we'll take care of, but the other ones, I don't know, whatever I'm in the weeds now, but I think it is interesting. Um, it, it, I feel like we had the same conversation when we talked about justice league where it's like, I don't understand why they have to try at least at the time. I don't understand why they're going to try and make another justice league when they could just make a flash movie where Superman shows up and it would be awesome. Right. Like, so I think Marvel has, Marvel is at a confidence level now where they feel like they could make Captain Marvel 2 and have, you know, some other character that we already know and like show up in that movie. And it, that's the team up. You know, that's like level one team up. And I think it'll be some time before we see another like Avengers level. It's almost like the comic books where it's like every couple of, you know, years you have these huge events or I don't know, every year, I don't know how comics work, but sometimes you have these huge events, but a lot of times it's just them showing up in each other's stories. I think that's leaving money on the table, but we'll, 
We'll see. I think after Avengers 4, the big question is, are there more Avengers movies? (laughs) And then the answer should be yes, because if it's anything like comics, new people show up for Avengers number one, no matter when you relaunch it. New team is new eyeballs, and it's always somebody's first Avengers team. That is that is true, and uh, one of the ways that I like to look at box office is tickets, estimated tickets sold. Um, and if you look at Marvel's top five films, estimated tickets sold, um, it's The Avengers, Black Panther, Infinity War, Age of Ultron, and Iron Man three. So it's like it's the it's the it's the stuff that has all the foundational buildings, with the exception of Black Panther, which is a very special movie on its own. It's the other movies are like either the third, second, third, you know, fourth iteration yeah. team up the big stuff. So I think there's probably truth to that. And I I don't think Marvel will totally get away from it. I just think that they're very confident in doing this other thing, too. Yeah. Well, so now that you've all heard all our opinions on this, we should probably tell you the mid credit scene we've been talking around. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, Scott goes into the quantum realm because they've learned to, uh, they have a capsule that absorbs the quantum energy that Michelle Pfeiffer has uh, been absorbing. Uh, but they're going to get some more quantum energy to help their new friend, Ghost, who apparently is somewhat of a friendly now. Uh, we have... Casper. Yeah. Yeah. We have uh, Michael Douglas, Michelle Pfeiffer, Evangeline Lilly running the machines for this uh, tunnel to send Scott into the quantum realm. I don't know why I uh, didn't use Paul Rudd's name, but I used the other actor's name. Who knows? It's a mystery. Uh, He goes in. uh, There's a countdown to bring him out. After two, Evangeline Lilly cuts out, and we uh, cut back to the big world where they've been dusted away, all three of them, uh, leaving Scott uh, stranded in the quantum realm. Oh, Dark. Dun, 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 dun. So that's what Where you could probably what, come out. That's literally what. So Dave said that like Scott would be in the quantum realm when the snap happened, and he would come back out, and like hope would be dusted or whatever. That's oh, something that he when said. we when he originally, I remember him saying that, and I always assumed that it would be Scott and Hope together coming back that's, out. That's some version. Like, we talked about that as, a, like, there were a bunch of different permutations. Yeah. But one of them definitely was Hope Hope gets dusted. Uh, and I think... Uh, well, I think that was because you talked to Evangeline Lily for your piece and she had already completed her Avengers 4 stuff. Yeah, and she had, said like, she was barely like a month in a, into it. Yeah, she was barely yeah. in Avengers 4. So, so I'm yeah. like, there's someone who gets snapped away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, uh, yeah. But I, I think... In every version of that, uh, all of our guesses about that, Dave, we had Scott back out of the quantum realm. He's still in the quantum realm, which is... No, no, because I thought he was going to be in the quantum realm because I thought there might be some perception change between people who are in the quantum realm and who are outside. Right, but like... Maybe they remember different things. But like, how is he going to get out? Like, yes, we talked about perception change, but like... Didn't you think he would be out oh. of the quantum realm? Oh, is he by stuck the end there of the now? Yeah, he's stuck. There. I, did, I didn't. I didn't know he'd be stuck there. Yeah, that's but I thought I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that was that's new. But it also seems like Doctor Strange is going to be pissed when he gets back. He's going to be like, ah, right. oh, now I got to go rescue this guy. Because <laughs> if I remember the first movie, he has the power of getting out of there himself with the regulator in his suit. Granted, it's a new regulator, but like we can hand wave that away. I'm pretty sure this is just a cliffhanger. 
but I am interested to see if there's any difference, if there's any reason he's specifically in this realm that we're told has all these crazy new different powers, and if that plays into Avengers 4, because in my theory that these are all you know, like little capsule things that are absolutely integral to Infinity War, him not only being in the quantum realm, but having that quantum energy has to be important, right? Because that's being teed up for a reason. Sounds I would hope. reasonable. Yeah, it's oh, the same think, way like, I'm hoping think... that Captain Marvel is being teed up as like because she knows something about the Soul Stone or Thanos from her 90s adventure that we're going to learn. Um, so you think he is going to be the one with uh, quantum energy and not Michelle Pfeiffer? Like you think he's going to have it too in addition to Michelle Pfeiffer? Well, no, he has the canister in the post credit scene. Right, he opens right, it up, right. it absorbs the energy, and then they never pull him out. So right, hopefully right, that's important and it's not just there to be like but we're definitely supposed to think that he's in deep shit because he uh went through the new tunnel that we've only seen vehicles go through but i'm pretty sure in the first movie we saw him shrink out of the quantum realm just with his suit right so yeah i'm not too worried about him being stuck there forever Uh, oh and then the second post credit scene which is after all the credits is uh, we see that ant playing the drums, yeah. which is in the trailer. Let me tell you a story right now. You do not need to stay to the end of the end credits. <laughs> yes, you've seen, <laughs> you've seen the end of credit scene in the. Well, he does the ant does it a couple times in the movie, but basically it's just that fucking ant on the drum kit. So if you've listened to this spoiler section for some reason before you've seen the movie, let me PSA. Oh, like me. Let me PSA this for you. There's a there's a credit uh, an important credit sequence right after the like. It's not even mid credits, like right after the like they do names, 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 and then there's this. Please one. don't leave. And then this is important. And then, uh, and then all the other names. All then after the three hours people. of credits about people who did visual effects yeah. on this film, and then you get to this fucking ant playing a drum, and that's like I felt the same way as I did when I saw that fucking dragon land on the Vegas Strip at the end of Fallen Kingdom credits, where I'm like, fuck you. Perfect. Made me wait through all these visual effects companies. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, let's pay. Yes, they deserve respect. I should probably watch their name scroll by. Uh, anyway, regardless, there's of so whatever, many of them, though. Regardless of whatever carrot is waiting for me at the end, so there are entire countries who don't have as many people as some of these companies have. <laughs> <laughs> at least Spider-Man: Homecoming knew that if you're going to make people wait for a post-credits thing that does nothing, you should make it a joke. I don't think Ant playing the drums is the right joke for this moment. I mean, it might be for the target audience of this film, which is like 12-year-olds. Yeah, maybe. And it does establish the ant is still out there because it pans over a TV and the emergency broadcast signals up. So presumably it's post-snap. So I don't know. Ant exists. Whatever. That's not going to be important. But I want the quantum energy to be important in Infinity War. Okay. Or Infinity Gauntlet or whatever the hell it's going to be called. Yeah, Avengers 4, which, like, yes, it makes sense that they're not doing anything at Comic-Con because there's nothing more to say after this movie that they couldn't have said in May. So they're just being withholding. No, I I definitely want them to not... Well, didn't didn't Feige just confirm, even though we already knew it was probably happening, didn't Feige just confirm that a Doctor Strange 2 is definitely happening? Uh, I think so, but, like, that's still... That's just new information that I wasn't expecting them to give us uh, before uh, the second in uh, or the fourth Avengers. And 
the other thing I'm saying well, is like, we also got we got Spider-Man 2's title too, so that's yeah, like, but that's Sony. Like I kind of some... I kind of thought that was Sony going rogue, being like, we're not beholden to your roles, Marvel. I kind of thought that was Tom Holland going rogue. No, that was you're joking, right? Um, m- mostly. Okay, I think <laughs> that was the whole. Well, I don't know. That was like the whole bit was like, uh, oh, Tom Holland spoils everything, and then and then so it was like a joke about him like accidentally spoiling. The movie title, but then like I saw a bunch of outlets take it really seriously and be like, "Oh my god, Tom Holland spoiled something again!" I was like, "No, Tom Holland yeah, didn't it accidentally." Felt like a bit, that's yeah, for it was sure. it was a bit. Tom Holland didn't accidentally flash the title of a movie on. It's he's not that bad, guys. Come on, it's a bit. Uh, anyway, sorry. <laughs> after after the press tour with Benedict Cumberbatch, he's learned all his lessons. I doubt from the pro. I doubt he's learned all his lessons, but hopefully some. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's, I think, Ant-Man and the Wasp and the MCU. Who knows what's coming for Captain Marvel uh, back in the 90s because this movie does not shed any light on it. Um, yeah, anything else before we uh, head out? Um, Can't wait to see Ant-Man and the Wasp. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, cool, guys. So, uh, Neil... First of all, I think I should tell people, if you go to patreon.com slash spoilers, you can subscribe to this show and get some like extra bonus content. Uh, this week, we're going to be doing a segment called Patriotism Reflux that is just for our uh, maesters and above levels. It's going to be super cool. But as always, this podcast continues on regardless. Neil, what are we doing next week? Well, next week, we're having a great debate. And we kind of have it narrowed down to two options. So we'll 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 announce what the options are uh, shortly on Twitter, uh, with plenty of time for people to send in their debates. Um, so we're gonna have a great debate next week. It's gonna be fun. Uh, it'll be the first podcast great debate that we've done since we did a bunch of real great debates at Con of Thrones in May, which will be both sweet and bitter. I believe people call that bittersweet. Mm. And so yeah, so it'll be fun. We'll, we'll uh, follow us on Twitter. Uh, Twitter.com slash Storm of Spoilers. Subscribe to that. Follow us. We'll tell you all about it. It's fine. Nice. Neil, if I wanted to find more of your work on the internet in between here and there, where would I where would I go? Well, while you're on the Twitter subscribing to at Storm of Spoilers or following, sorry, subscribing to, that's a weird thing. Uh, you can get me over at Rejects. Um, and uh, you can follow me at filmschoolrejects.com. And... Um, that's pretty much it. Also, don't forget to email us questions, comments, thoughts, theories, all that good stuff. Stormerspoilers at gmail.com. And Miss Joanna Robinson. Uh, you can find me on vanityfair.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This, or you can very soon hear me talking about the TV series Sharp Objects on the podcast Still Watch. Oh, no, right now. Right now, still watch, still watching Sharp Objects episode zero in your feed. Subscribe. Okay. Yeah, it's already there, but it's that's a mini. You can listen to the mini, the mini intro. Still watching colon Sharp Objects. Well, you got to listen to the mini intros. Mini mini yeah. intro. Yeah. What will I know about Richard's inside jokes uh, early on <laughs> if I don't listen to the mini intro episode? That's true. How will I know what this podcast is about? Indeed. It's just a just an Amy Adams cast. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, Amy Adams cast would actually be interesting. Anyway, I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can find me on Twitter at DA7E. I'm going to be writing at Thrillist.com 
about Ant-Man and the Wasp, but it's a greater place at the MCU, of course. Um, and otherwise, yeah, you can find me there writing about that. Um, to all of you who have not fallen down, I say happy six months. Uh, to all of you who have fallen down in 2018, I say a year is just 365 days starting and beginning whenever you want. Uh, don't fall down. See you guys next week. Stop by in the summer. Do you remember? Do you remember when we met that summer? New kids on the block had a bunch of hits. Chinese food makes me sick. And I think it's fly when girls stop by for the summer. For the summer. I like girls that wear Abercrombie and Fitch. I take her if I had one wish. She's been gone since that summer, since that summer. Hip hop, mama, they speak in Spain. Met you on summer in it.